I collect books which are called Incunaboli, which are since, you know, Gutenberg in, in uh, 1457, I guess, or 70, he invented the press. From uh, 1470 to 1500, it's called Incunaboli. Then you call them Cinquecentina, and then they become books. So that period is the period where you do the Incunaboli, who are very rare to find. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. I'm your host, Cameron Steiner, and I'm joined by my co-host and brother, Ryan. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. That's right. And as always, please subscribe and leave a review for us. It truly helps. We hope you enjoy the pod. Let's go. So a few years back, it was our first time in Venice. And of course, I had to do a gondola ride. Uh, whether it's cliche or not. And our gondolier pointed out the top floor of the Amon Venice Papadopoli Palazzo. He looked at us and said, or rather asked us if we could see the lights on the top floor. And then he followed up with telling us that the owner of that building turned it into an Amon hotel, but decided to keep the top floors for his home and his family. And he's a count. Now, I get super intrigued by this stuff, so of course I did extensive research and found out that while he currently lives at the top floor with his family, he also grew up in that home. Count Giberto comes from an aristocratic upbringing, which to me meant that there had to be some sort of collections that have been kept in the family, and I was absolutely correct. Count Giberto has some amazing original oil paintings of his ancestors, an incredible book collection that's currently growing with family ties antiques, you name it. Not only that, but he has an amazing collection of Murano glass, a lot of which he's actually designed himself. However, growing up around these items, I was really curious to find out whether Giberto thought of himself as a collector. He is a charmer in every sense of the word, and he actually even invited Ryan and I back to Venice for some coffee and collection diving. And you can believe it, we are 150% going. This chat was such an honor and a pleasure, and I will definitely give you all the scoop after we visit him in Venice. But for now, I suggest a cocktail or a cappuccino, because this episode takes you right to Amon Venice, where it all began. Please enjoy. This is Count Giberto for Collector's Gene Radio. Giberto, thank you so much for joining us today on uh, Collector's Gene Radio. It's, it's an honor to have you. No, it's a pleasure for me. You know, it's been couple of years now since I was in Italy, uh, Venice specifically, and the reason that uh, you popped into my head when I decided to start making this podcast was uh, we were on a gondola ride, uh, my now fiance and I, and they had mentioned, they had pointed out the, the Amman Resort mm-hmm. Hotel and said, you see those lights at the very top of the, uh, of the hotel there? And I said, yeah, sure, I see them. And they said, somebody lives up there. <laughs> and uh, I, I just was enamored by the whole history of um, not only the, the building itself, but um, learning about you and your family. And so I think a good place for us to start is to, uh, I, I'd love to get back some background on yourself and, and your family. Mm. Okay, no problem. Well, the, the, the Palazzo you saw, 
has been turned in a, a man seven years ago, more or less. I was uh, born here. I was actually born in Rome because the doctor was in Rome. But after two weeks, I was here. And we used to live the second floor, the second noble floor that you maybe saw with your gondola passing by, which was very beautiful. And then as all the Venetians had the same problem, that to maintain this huge palazzo was very, very expensive. So we started renting, renting, renting. And at the end, we, we end up at the top. And so I had to rent all the rest. And I was very lucky to do this deal with Aman Resorts, who are, who are, which are the best hotels, I guess, in the world. I mean, my, my preferred ones. And we made the works for three years. And then finally, we opened this hotel, which is considered one of the nicest hotels, most beautiful. I mean, it's the only hotel where you find inside the ballroom, done in the... The whole palazzo was built in the 16th century. It was finished in 1558, something like that. And then my great-grandfather, who was called Papadopoulos de Brandini, which was a Greek family, very, very rich. Uh, they had a bank in Venice. They arrived in Venice from Greece at the end of the 17th century, beginning of the 18th century. And they became very rich. And uh, they had three palazzos in Venice. And when this guy got married, this great-grandfather of mine, maybe more than great-grandfather, two or three steps beyond, um, married with the last Aldo Brandini, who was a, f um, a family from Florence, who had a pope who was Clemente VII. As a present, he gave to her this palazzo. And at the moment, he bought a palazzo who was next to ours, and um, he pulled down the palazzo to make two gardens and uh, another wing. So when you were passing by with the gondola, you saw the palazzo and the garden, which is in Venice very, very rare to have a big garden on the Grand Canal. To have two is unique. <laughs> it's like having a garden in New York. It's like having, yeah, exactly, a garden, two gardens in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, so when I was very little, I was living here, and uh, it was still very, very beautiful. And then... We moved to Rome because my father died when I was very young. He was very old. I was the only boy of the family. And uh, we started renting the palazzo. When I got married, I came back. I took the last floor and I started thinking, what could we do with this huge house? Because it's 7,000 square meters. So it's really big, very big. And it's very expensive to keep, obviously. So because everything falls down. And it's, it's, you know, Venice, it's very humid. It's very difficult to keep buildings in a good shape. And so we did this deal, finally, and, and now we live happily on the top of the man, which is fantastic because I go down for drinks, I have and whatever you wish. You have a, we have a wonderful restaurant, we have the garden where I go down and read my book, I do all these kinds of things. Sure. I mean, every, every Amman uh, resort and, and hotel is absolutely stunning. And the level of detail and taste and the finishes are, are really second to none. But I find that your property in specific and, and your house is unlike the others because there's, there's a, you know, an Amman resort in the middle of the desert in, I think it's Utah, and absolutely beautiful. But, but it's different. This is the only old palazzo who has been turned to a, to a man. You have to think that in, in, in this house at the second, f second floor, which has remained 18th century, because the rest of the palazzo was redone at 1840 by this, my great-grandfather. And uh, 
the, the, the second noble floor is remained how it was in the 18th century, and it has all the frescoes of Tiepolo, of Guarana. It has the only alcove entirely painted and made in stucco by Tiepolo, Giovanni Battista Tiepolo. And that was my mother's room when I was a child. I still remember when she was sleeping there. And, I mean, you can come here and sleep in a Tiepolo room. I think it's the only hotel in the world that I know, at least. Incredible. So growing up in, in Palazzo Papadopoli, you were really exposed to a whole different uh, side of the world and I guess the, the level of detail and the, the, even the, the things, right? The items that were maybe even on a coffee table, right? Mm-hmm. Th- these are not normal things that uh, the general population grows up around. Can you, can you touch a little bit on what you grew up around and the collections that maybe your family had of certain things, whether it was art or antiques or, uh, you know, even, even glass, if, if that's where the inspiration uh, for your glass came from. Yeah, it did. Absolutely. Yeah, I was, I was, I was very lucky. I'm still very lucky. I feel very lucky, but you have to, to understand that in, in Venice, it was quite the same in all the palazzos. So it's not just a unique palazzo because every palazzo has his story and every family had that. that, We call them, you call them collection. I call them uh, interior decorator of the house. I mean, you know, they've always been there. I mean, I was, I I always saw them. So for me, they they were normal. And then lots of them were sold by my mother, so I don't see them anymore. (laughs) <laughs> Hopefully, to a good home. <laughs> yeah, the home re- re- finally the the home resisted. But I mean, the big thing they all went. But I mean, we are very lucky, nevertheless. And yes, the glass. I saw the old glass. It's there where I started to to think to redo the glasses as they were before with an old style, and then. You know, all my friends used to call me saying, uh, I have three glasses who are broke. Can you make them again? And so I started going to Murano. And so I decided to design some glass. And that's how it started, actually. To do old things, I mean, new things, more modern, possibly, but with the old um, touch or with the old style. Sure. So you, you really turned a, a passion of yours into a business, it sounds like. Well, business is a big word. We don't make money with it because it's very difficult to make money. I've always been very good in spending money more than in doing money. <laughs> I think you and I probably have a lot in common then. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, it's much better, you know, to how to how to spend it. It's it's a it's a it's a very big atu. Yeah, we don't make money with glass, but we have lots of fun, no, Julia? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Ju- Julia, we could get a little guest appearance here. She, she really helped put this uh, whole episode all together. And she, she's been working for you for some time now. How, how did you guys get together? But she's, the, she's the daughter of a, of a friend of mine that I know since ever. I mean, we were maybe in the same school when we were young. And, but he has, he's one year older than I am. That's <sighs> why I didn't see him. But Julia started working with my wife. And then she moved to the glass uh, and now she's the boss of the glass by far. She decides almost everything. I try to decide something, but you know she has the last word. <laughs> and then, and then you just have to pay for it. We all do, but <laughs> it's not a question <laughs> of pain. But we don't lose money this year, and we don't make money, which is already a good a good thing. Now having fun. 
Yeah, that's that's what it's all about. I mean, at some point when you're doing something you love, you you stop looking at the, the costs of things and you start looking at the joy that you get from it. You're right. And you know what? The the point of making money with Murano and making the things you like, it's 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 complicated. For a very simple reason, uh, which is very stupid to, to say like this, but it's it's quite obvious for me, not for you, because you don't know the glass in in, in <coughs> Murano how it works. But if you come to me and you buy six glasses, most of the time I have to order some glasses, which I do, and they never make you six glasses. They make you thirty six glasses every time. <laughs> Otherwise, they don't do them. So you have a huge. Uh, uh, how you say stock, but uh, <laughs> but so that's why you never make money because you you can't make money, but you have a big stock. I could give all my glasses to my five daughters, four daughters, and a boy when they get married. At least that. Are you doing the Murano glass full time as a? I, I don't want to call it a business anymore, but no, I actually work for an American company who is called Aeon. Oh sure, yeah, you know Aeon. I, I work yeah. for Aeon. And that's my hobby, the glass. Very nice. And so as a maker of Murano glass, are you also looking in antique shops for glass pieces that inspire you? I mean, do you collect glass to also inspire you to make glass? No, I don't collect glass. I collect other things, but not glass. What what else are you collecting? Well, I collect uh, uh, incunaboli. And, and and books, old books, because I actually have here in, in the house the archive of the family. Wow. And uh, there is a, which, which, is, which is the thing I like more, I study all the time. And uh, when I find some documents uh, that I don't have with the name of the family of, of one of the family who ended in my family, I try to buy them. And there was a, come si un ramo? A, a part of your family. A part of my family that in the 16th century, they were in Venice. And they were the first one to do uh, books, you know, to print books. They were printers. And so I, I collect books which are called Incunaboli, which are since, you know, Gutenberg in, in uh, 1457, I guess, or 70, he invented the press. From uh, 1470 to 1500, it's called incunaboli. Then you call them cinquecentine, and then they become books. So that period is the period where you do the incunaboli, who are very rare to find. And actually, uh, in your uh, questions, uh, I saw there is one, what is the thing you lost and you couldn't buy that you really want to buy for your collection? And uh, (laughs) it's a book. It's a book which is, it's called uh, Al Corano di Macometto, done by Cornelius Arrivabene. And it was done in uh, 4070, maybe 4080. And it's the first translation in vulgar language of the Corano under the Inquisition. And so this ancestor of mine was condemned to, to be killed because, you, you know, you, you, the church didn't allow you to, to, to do these kinds of things. But uh, fortunately, they didn't get him. He died before. But the first translation of the Koran, of the Koran in, in, in lingua, in the Valga language, was done by this ancestor of mine who was called Cornelius Arrivabene. And 
four years ago, five years ago, at, at uh, Sotheby, they wrote me a, a mail saying if I was interested to buy a copy, because there must be, I don't know, maybe four copies in, in, in all the world, but it was too, too expensive and I couldn't buy it. That is the thing I would have loved to buy. Yeah, so, so it sold, you said, at a Sotheby's auction? Yeah, it was sold by Sotheby in a, in a private translate, you know, I guess, because I never saw it. Sure. But I mean, it was very expensive, so I couldn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, your family must be uh, pretty popular writers then. <laughs> no, but lots of, I mean, lots of families are popular in it. In, you know, they're always the same. But in, in, in yeah, so it's difficult to find things uh, of the family. When I find them, I try to buy them. Or I try to buy as we, the this archive I have is it, be, it starts in twelve sixty, so there's a lot to buy <laughs> if you find. <laughs> you got a long ways to go, huh? Yeah, but I mean, sometimes there are things you can't buy because they're too expensive, or you know, some some. As I have lots of of um, how you say autograph importante autographs oh, autographs from I mean autographs I mean from I don't know uh, Charles V to Louis XIV to whatever you want there are some which I would love to have that I don't uh, uh, for an example another thing I wanted to buy that belonged to our family and it was maybe sold or stolen we we never understood uh, uh, you know who is Verdi Giuseppe Verdi sure. Yeah. And um, the best friend of Verdi was called Oprandino Rivabene, and he was of my family. It was his best friend. And there were 350 letters uh, written by Verdi to Oprandino and Oprandino to Verdi. The one that Oprandino wrote to Verdi, obviously, I, I never saw them. But the one that Verdi wrote to Oprandino, we used to own them. And then they were stolen during the Second World War. And 150 are in the University of Yale. I wonder how they arrived there, but there they are. <laughs> and the other 150 was sold. They, they asked me if I was going to sue this uh, company of, uh, you know, of auctions two years ago. And I couldn't sue them because I had no, no documents uh, that they were sold. And uh, they were fortunately given to the Verdi uh, Foundation in Milano. And so now the 150 are there, but also those were very expensive. I mean, too expensive for me to buy. Are there other people that uh, you know of that collect items from your family's history, such as these books or these letters or? No, I really don't. that I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, there are lots of people who collect old books. So in the old books, maybe yes. Sure, yeah. Yeah, the, the antiquarian books and, and letters and transcripts are, are, are really becoming more and more popular and collectible. I mean, some of the prices on some of the stuff I see at auctions is crazy. Yeah, it depends. It depend, you know, you can buy a letter of Carlo Quinto for, for maybe $2,000 if it says nothing. It depends what it says. If it says he was, I don't know, Hypochondriac, it would cost you fifty thousand. <laughs> Depends <laughs> what's written on it, which it makes it so special. No, 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 absolutely. I think um, it, it, at some point in our lifetime, I think it stops mattering about who it was and more so about how old it is. Right? To have something from the fourteen hundreds or the even the seventeen hundreds 
is objectively rare, you know? And at, at some point, I think it stops uh, becoming about who the item is from and how old it is. Yes, it depends what you collect. The paintings of the 19th century, for an example, now you buy, uh, you, you buy paintings of the 19th century for very little money, but you buy an Kapoor for $3 million. So it means it's not time, it's what it is, it's fashion. You buy all the furniture in Italy, you can buy some amazing, beautiful furniture of the 17th century for really nothing. 20 years ago, they would cost you, what would cost you $100,000 20 years ago. Now you buy it for 3000 because nobody wants them in their house. But there are lots of beautiful things that you can buy for very little. And I think that those kinds of things will come back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that people who are starting collections start to really understand the beauty of older things, whether it is books or even plates or silverware, right? I think people start to see the beauty when they when they start to dive a little bit deeper into history of old things. And a lot of times it doesn't have to go with your house, but if you have good sense of taste, right, you can make it work. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? The the if you want to if you try to do now things that you used to do before, it's impossible in silver, as you will say, you know, in plates or in whatever. Because the, the, the artisans of the time, they had all the time to do the things because the time was not a cost. Now it's a cost. So now it's impossible to do. We tried to do things with, with Julia. And if you see my, my website, we do things not in glass, but with, you know, crystal rock, Agatha, these kinds of things, which I love to do. And I get inspiration from old pieces, Russian old pieces of the 17th century, all these kinds of things, and uh, Fabergé of the 19th century, 18th century. But to, to redo them is extremely complicated because there's no, um, they don't know how to do it fundamentally. And it costs a lot. Sure. It's like trying to recreate a whole line of Lalique glass, right? And exactly. I'm sure um, that you have used some of the techniques that maybe Lalique has used in the past, but it's not easy. And there's a reason that these things are collectible. Yeah. But Lalique, it's full of Lalique around. Uh, I think you can, you can easily find them. But the, the technique of Lalique is the technique we use to do our busts, for an example, which is called Chera Persa, Lost Wax. And it's how he used to do his his vases and how we do, um, I don't know if you saw my, my website, my, the bust of Ottaviano Augusto is done with the same technique. Sure. That was the bust that was in the, um, like, uh, burnt orange, reddish sort of color. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's beautiful. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amber. amber. Yeah. The red, yeah, it's, it's, it's the yellow red is intricate. <laughs> it's it's very intricate. And um, how, how long did that take you to make that? Well, I'm laughing because we went yesterday morning, uh, Julia and me, to open a new one that I did in uh, Aventurina, which it takes maybe one month. If you're lucky, one month. You have to be lucky. Because uh, this one I just did now, which is in a... It's a, it's a, it's done in Aventurina. Aventurina, it's a, it's a, 
kind of glass who is quite beautiful because it's um, normally it's deep uh, green with little uh, point of gold inside. Very nice. I'm excited to see yeah, it. Special, yeah. And we just took it out yesterday. It has to be acidated and then I hope it works. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure it'll turn out great. So I, I want to touch back a little bit on something that you said about collections in general of things that you grew up around, right? Um, antiques, uh, which maybe weren't antiques at the time, right? Or silver cups or family history articles. I'm not that old. There were, there were, <laughs> there were, there were antiques still when I was a child. I'm 59. Sure. I'm not 110. No, but but even for me, you know, my favorite stores where I live are antique shops, and I love old things. I love things that are older than me that have had a, a whole life before me, right? Mm-hmm. And when you go to think about where all of these items have been, I mean, your mind really gets going. So my question to you is, you grew up around a lot of stuff that were probably antiques with your family or passed down from your family. Yeah. But a lot of these items were were probably in some sort of collection and and not a collection from a, uh, you know, collecting with a purpose, but things that your family had said objectively rare or beautiful and and they wanted to buy these items when they found them, right? And to me, that's what a a collection is. So for example, you, uh, from what I've seen, have a collection of silver cups and it might be five of them, it might be 50 of them, but either way... Someone said, you know, that these are objectively good looking and they should buy them, right? So yeah. can you can you touch upon some of the things that you grew up around that you remember your family having um, collections of, whether they were meant to be collections or whether they were just passed down through the family? Difficult question. Maybe we had some sculptures that I don't see anymore, which were sold maybe. And I know we had a, a, a very nice collection of... Um, you know the carpets they were but not, they're not carpets they're the carpets you put on the wall with some scenes oh sure like um like tapestries and yeah sort of tapestry but yeah there was a very important collection that be- came from the Dobrendini family from the pope family and um, they were all sold by my mother but I remember there was something like 16 and they used to cover all the big rooms downstairs at the second noble floor and those were very beautiful. There is only one left who is, belongs to my sister now. I see. Okay. Going back to the exposures that you had growing up in in the Palazzo, um, wh- what was it like? I mean, were, were you really surrounded by aristocratic figures growing up? Were you surrounded by businesses coming in and out? What, what was that really like? Business, no way. I mean, you were not allowed to talk about business. Yeah, it was not a conversation. I remember you couldn't talk about money. My mother used to tell me that she was not supposed to talk about, to talk money. You, you wouldn't say that cost 1,000 euros. Now we say it currently. But when I was a child, you were not supposed to talk about money. It was very vulgar to talk about money. So they, nobody talked about money. I mean, when I was a very little. So I had the the aristocratic figures you mean the paintings they were all paintings of the family which are still here because they are the only one they were not sold because nobody wanted them sure and those are all original paintings right 
Yeah, obviously, and they're all here. I mean, they're all here around me, and uh, the painting of all the members of the family. Because all the paintings, yeah. a bit better, were, were the first one to be to be sold. Obviously, <laughs> so, yeah. your mom, your mom really had a, had quite the garage sale. Yeah, she had a huge sale because the palazzo was very, very, very full. But you know, when my father died, it was very difficult in these years in Italy in the seventies. It was a very difficult moment. There was no money around, and. And and there were no men in the family, and so she had to sell to you know to to pay the schools, to pay these kinds of things. My sister went to university in America. She went in Penn University. I went to Penn University for a week, and then I left because it was too difficult for me. <laughs> but she made the, the university in the states. It was very expensive for an Italian family. You had to take an apartment in in the States to pay the rent, to pay the school. So she had to pay my school. I was in the military college, which was very, very cheap. But So, you know, it was the 70s in Italy. It was complicated. Yeah. And I, I you know, one of the questions I was going to ask you is that um, growing up in, in the Palazzo, there must have been thousands and thousands and thousands of items and, and paintings and, and yes. uh, you know, dishes. But it seemed, I was going to ask you when Amon came in and, and renovated where all that stuff went, but it seems like your mom has sold most of that a long time ago. Yeah, no, well, yeah, during the a 80s. And then when we had to take away everything, it was very funny because we found a lot of, of um, big suitcases full of the, you know, the dress of the cooks, or the dress of the waiters, or, but, but tons of them, tons of them, and lots of pieces of the house of whatever. It took it took months to take away everything and throw away. We gave a lot of books to a lot of people, you know, old dresses, old costumes. We, we had to be to do it very very quickly because they had to start the works. So it was very it, it was very quickly done, which was fun. I remember in the garden, having into summer in the garden, having all the the cooks dressed with the cooks hats in in <laughs> you know in a pile in the garden. It was quite fun. I'm sure you stumbled upon some pretty amazing stuff and, and stuff that brought back a lot of memories for you when you were, were cleaning out. Yeah, but fortunately, you know, I have a, a horrible memory. And you need to forgive what I did yesterday. So I, I really live in the, I have no memory, which is maybe a help sometimes, no? Probably helps in the sense that you don't remember the prices that your mom sold things at. I know that, yeah, that I know it was nothing. <laughs> at, the time, at that time, it was really very, very little. $2 and you could buy whatever you wish. Oh my gosh. To, to be a fly on the wall for that. <laughs> we are still sitting here, which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that's the best part. Yeah. As a collector, the best collection that the family ever had was the collection of my great-grandfather, who was called Niccolò Papadopoli Aldo Brandini, who was the most important collection in Italy after the one of the king of um, coins. You say coins? Ah. Ancient coins. Yes, sure. And the value was inestimated, and um, this great-grandfather of mine gave it as a present to the city of Venice, and now it's in the Museo Correre, and you can see it. There is all the Papadopoli collection in the Museo Correre, and I went last year because uh, I wanted to see something, and they showed me this 
immense collection with, you know, golden coins big like a plate. I mean, they were amazing. And with, with coins from, from the Roman period to, to now. Unbelievable. It's huge and it's very, I mean, it's priceless. But unfortunately, it was Incredible. given as a present, so I can't have it back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not as a present to you. <laughs> no, I would have loved to have it. I would have sold it immediately, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. So I would, uh, I'd be remiss to ask you about watches because I, I'm, I'm a watch collector myself. Do you collect watches yourself? I know you've done some work with uh, Parmigiani Fleurier, and uh, I'm interested to learn about kind of your your take on that because it is art, right? At the end of the day, yeah, it is. I love watches, like you. I collect. It's a big word. I, I have twelve, fifteen watches, which I love, and that's um, more than you can wear in a week, right? <laughs> that's more than you can wear in a week. I change watch. But I'm sad to say it's very, it's very, if you want to say, it's very common. But my favorite watches are the uh, vintage Rolex. They're hard not to love. They're hard not to love, but they're also very, very common, if you want. But this Christmas, I made myself a present. And because I found this, my, my favorite Rolex old is a GMT Master, which for me is my, my the best. My best. And uh, I found an old GMT Master of the 80s. Inside is black and gold and acciaio, acciaio oro. And uh, you know the thing that goes around? Yep, the second hand. Yeah, it's uh, lost her, his, her color, who was black, and became gray. So it's very wow. rare. And it's beautiful because you have the gray around and the black inside. And it's beautiful. I love it. Ah, yes, the, the, the bezel the bezel has turned gray. Yeah, exactly. So it's very, very beautiful. And I have the same one in brown. Brown, I love the GMT Master Brown. It's by far, in my opinion, maybe one of the greatest watches of, of all time. A lot of people have said, you know, it's, it's the best uh, everyday watch. It's the best dress watch. It's just all around. You can wear it with anything. And it never ties you. The Rolex is no. the only watch that you are never tired of wearing. No. And, you know, it, it, it might be popular and it, in a sense, they're rare because to find them in good condition sometimes is a rarity where they haven't gone off to a Rolex service and been changed out a million times, right? Yeah, so exactly. to find it in, in great condition is rare. They might not be the most rare in terms of the availability, but... In general, to find something in good condition these days from the past is rare. Yeah, and totally, totally original that they didn't change inside something. That is very important. Yep, very and important. But for me, they're the most, I mean, they're my favorite. Because, I mean, there are some, Pate Philippe obviously is the best is the best uh, watch in the world, if you want Pate Philippe. But, I mean, they're, they're extremely sure. expensive. The Parmigiani yeah, story was very funny because they came up to me and they said if I wanted to be, uh, um, how you say, a testimonial of the Parmigiani and Parmigiani. And so I, I went to, to see and have a chat with Michel Parmigiani, who showed me some watches which are unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. Old watches. Yeah, because they have, they have a collection of old watches, which are something, really. I tell you, I never saw something like that in my life. I remember there was this couple of watches of the um, 18th century done for a Chinese guy 
very rich. All, uh, uh, I, I don't know how to explain to you, but it was a big, big watch. It, it, it wasn't a, a watch, a uh, wristwatch, obviously. It was, you know, a watch to put in your pocket. But it was big like um, two packets of Marlboro. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and they were gold with, with ruby inside. And there were designs of the, with the mechanismo, you know, of the moon, of the year, of the day, of the second. Huh? And it was double. I mean, they were two exactly the same. And I asked the guy, Michel Parmigiani, but, but why are they, I mean, they, they're identical. Why would you do two identical uh, uh, watch? And he said, because in China at the time, you couldn't buy one watch. You were supposed to buy two because buying only one, it was bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, no? Amazing. Yeah, but if you go on the Parmigiani website, you will find the old collection and you'll see they have amazing things. Yeah, I'm sure their their archive is pretty amazing. Amazing, amazing. Well, uh, Gilberto, I think it's it's time to, to dive in a little bit into the Collector's Gene Rundown. And uh, as you know, these are, are short, quick answered questions. If you have a story behind one of them, you're you're more than happy to elaborate. Uh, it's This is totally up to you. And uh, should we just get started? Okay. So I think you answered this one earlier, but the first one is the one that got away, the one that you missed that you can't get over. And I think uh, I think we know what that one is, and I don't want to harp on it too much. I don't want to upset okay. you. <laughs> no, let's go to the second one. <laughs> uh, what, what's the uh, on the on-deck circle? What do you have your eye on next, whether it be uh, a, a painting or a piece of glass or a watch or something that uh, you collect or maybe a book? Um, actually, I don't know. I, that, that my, my dream would to have a Lamborghini Miura of the 70s, but I guess I will never be able to buy it. You know what's a Lamborghini Miura, you remember? Oh, sure. My family is in the Lamborghini business, so I, we might be able to find you one. But no, you have to give it to me because it costs $3 million now. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it's the most beautiful car ever. We'll make a trade. We'll find you the Mura and, and we'll I take... You, uh, you can come here and choose whatever you wish. <laughs> All right, deal. I think I'm going straight for the, uh, for the book collection, maybe. Okay, done. <laughs> come with the Mura. Orange, please. <laughs> All right, you got it. Uh, what, what's the unobtainable? The one that you, you can't have maybe because it's too expensive or in a museum, a private collection? I would love to have a Rembrandt. That's my dream. I think everyone's on the same page with you there. <laughs> the page one rewrite, if you could collect one thing besides your current, what would it be and why? Well, I love Imari pottery from Japan. Beautiful. If I would be very rich, I would start taking beautiful but important and beautiful pieces, Imari, of pottery of the 16th and 17th century. Lovely. Who's the goat for you? Who do you look up to in the collecting world? Ah, uh, <laughs> obviously, what an answer. It's, it's quite obvious. Ralph Lauren. Ah. The most beautiful collection of cars in the world. He has the most beautiful car ever made, which is the Bugatti, you know, the black Bugatti. It's, it's incredible. Mamma mia, I have the book of his collection. It was given to me by somebody, which it's, I mean... What a collection. That is my dream. Yes. It's pretty mesmerizing. I'm, I'm not sure if you ever saw the, uh, the New York Fashion Week 
show that they did, but they did it in his car garage. Mamma mia, no, I'll go and look for it. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you a link after this. Oh, fantastic. Because no, because I have the book of his collection, which is great. It's really great. He has the most beautiful car collection ever. ever. It's very tasteful, you know? It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's full of taste. Baby. Even even the uh, the hyper cars, right? The, the high-end Ferraris and Lamborghinis, they're either black or they're red. And, yeah. And they're just elegant. They're always the best ones he has. Yep. Okay. The chase or the sale? Do you do you enjoy the hunt more or the ownership? The hunt all the time. <laughs> I think that's been the uh, unanimous answer so far with all of our guests. <laughs> it's obvious. When you have it, you don't want it anymore. <laughs> no, you're ready to sell it. You're ready to sell it. Exactly. But normally you sell it for the half the price you bought it. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lastly, Gilberto, do you uh, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? Yes, I think so. All right, I love it, Gilberto. It's it's been a pleasure to chat with you. No, pleasure um, me. Come, come back in Venice, so I, I show you the the archive. Yes, uh, ne- next time I'm in Venice, you're the first person I'm I'm sending an email to because I think uh, you and I need to have a, a cof- coffee in the garden, look through some of the archive, okay, yeah. and uh, have ourselves a day. Yeah, come with the Lamborghini. Don't forget it. <laughs> All right, I won't forget it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for so much. Take care. Ciao, ciao. All right, that does it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Collectors Gene Radio, signing off. 